On today's podcast, Tape 29, Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and After the Gold Rush by Neil Young. Trust the Wizards present Robert Pollard's Guide to the Late 60s. Before going on tour with his band, Guided by Voices, in 2001, Robert Pollard recorded his favourite records onto 62 double-sided cassettes. Music from 1966 to 1971, from the best-known bands of the era to obscure, unheard-of psychedelic curios. The Wizards are on a mission to listen to and explore every groove. Kicker and Chorizo invite you to turn off your mind, relax and float downstream as you listen to Robert Pollard's guide to the late 60s. You may well think you've seen the uh, the first album under the discussion somewhere before uh, and it is Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. This is released in 1970 and I suppose in a way is that the second album by Crosby, Stills & Nash uh, their first album coming out in 1969. But of course, with now Neil Young joining the band, um, he actually only appeals, uh, appears on about half the tracks. Um, and uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash share vocals throughout. Um, on drums, we've got Dallas Taylor. And on bass, we've got Greg Reeves. And I think the, the, uh, the politics of the band is such that on the, the cover, you can see Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young in... Bigger font than uh, Dallas Taylor and Greg Reeves, despite the fact that actually those are the only two people who appear on all the tracks. Um, nevertheless, uh, it's a, an album that was quite difficult to make by all accounts. Um, some stories told by uh, Stephen Stills particularly talk about 800 hours worth of uh, recording. Uh, and a lot of songs were recorded and, and dropped over time. And they weren't really hard on, on particular songs to make them as perfect as they could, um, despite the fact that actually most of them were recorded separately. In fact, I think there are only two or three songs where all the band members play um, together at all. Um, interestingly, the, the Cosby, Stills and Nash album that came out in 1969 was kind of a, an album that came out in a, in a happy time for, for the, the three. Uh, they're all in, in relationships at that point, whereas this one... Uh, is a much darker time. Um, David Crosby's girlfriend had died in a car crash um, and Stephen Stills and um, uh, Graham Nash were, were, had, had split up from their, their girlfriends. So there, there's all that going on. And, of course, then you've got Neil Young, not necessarily the easiest person to work with, um, joining in the mix. Still, the, the album went to number one in the US and went to number five in the UK. It's interesting you say that Neil Young's not necessarily the easiest person to work with. Um, author Pete Doggett, in his really good book, uh, CSNY, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, each, each one is an interesting, if not necessarily... This is all four of them. Each one an interesting, if not necessarily likeable personality. Four enormous egos. Yeah, you, what you had in the in the original three before Neil Young even or he already joined, you got three of the most egotistical and argumentative people in the music industry, all in their I mean, own I mean, I can only I can only imagine how difficult that is being being one of two huge egos on this podcast. I know, I know. Imagine if we brought Neil Young into it. <laughs> yeah. um, but all three, all the original three were all in their own way troublesome band members in their original groups. Uh, Crosby mm. was too outspoken on 
political matters for the, and, and on sort of countercultural matters for the rest of the birds to handle. Uh, but the final straw was when he told the rest of the birds they weren't good enough musicians to play with him. Uh, the Tempestuous Stills is a somewhat obsessive control freak and also quite a violent chap um, <laughs> who frequently fell out with his ba- Buffalo Springfield badmate Neil Young uh, and the other band members having to physically separate them on numerous occasions, Neil Young quit that band at least four different times during their fairly short lifespan. Mm. Um, and then, to me, the oddest addition to this already dysfunctional rabble, Manchester's own Graham Nash out of the Hollies, who, who unlike the other two, he's not even from... Well, Stills isn't from California, but the others were all at least living in the same area. Whereas he, he'd been on tour in the USA with the rest of the Hollies... Who, uh, who were the rest of the Hollies were big beer drinkers. They liked pints of beer down the pub. They had no interest mm. in any of that smoking that marijuana or taking yeah. that LSD or any of that turn in, tune on, drop out nonsense. Come on, Clark, you get the beers and it's your round, son. That was their kind of uh, spirit. <laughs> but Graham Nash had fallen head over heels with the whole countercultural scene and he'd written the sort of slightly psychedelic flavoured King Midas in reverse. For my money, mm. the best song the Hollies ever did. But it had been a massive flop, and the rest mm. of the band went went into full on. Um, see, I told you so. Nobody wants any of that nonsense. You daft hip uh, <laughs> uh, So they followed it up with uh, the lightweight fluff of Jennifer Eccles, which was a big success. Uh, mm. So the rest of the Hollies go see. You know that's what people want. Um, yeah. But Nash's heart was no longer in it. He was dreaming of California dreaming. So and of Joni Mitchell, who he'd spent. Yeah met and spent the night with after a gig in Ottawa in March 1968. Uh, Joni, of course, being the former girlfriend of David Crosby, who'd helped uh, get a record deal and produced her first album. And uh, when Nash got back to England, he ditched his band. Uh, And as with quite a lot of this story, there are different versions of exactly what happened. Uh, All the Hollies say that Nash just buggered off and didn't tell him he was leaving, whereas Mm. Nash is insistent that he did. Um, but this is one of several examples of where uh, either Nash is a serial liar or mm. he's extremely unlucky in that many people close to him have misremembered the exact details about <laughs> certain important events in his life. Mm. Anyway, so he ditches mm. his wife, Rose Eccles, not Jennifer Eccles, goes off in search of the hippie dream and a new life with Joni Mitchell, gets to the USA, however, and he found that Joni Mitchell wasn't even in California. She was by now living in New York with a struggling poet and Canadian compatriot by the name of Leonard Cohen. Oh, yeah. Uh, but a few months later... Whatever happened to him? Yeah, exactly. A few months later, Joni and Nash did end up in a relationship and living together. Uh, and, but even that relationship didn't last long because, as you said, by the time they were recording this album, Mitchell had ended their relationship by telegram uh, when she was hol- on holiday in Greece. Uh, nice. And in the words of her song, California... Uh, she met a redneck on a Grecian Isle who did the goat dance very well. So, uh, <laughs> uh, And he also cooked good omelettes and stews, she says in the song. So you can't blame Joni for dumping Nash for, for him. But another yeah. important woman in the, in, the, in, the, in the story is Mama Cass from the Mamas and Papas. All right. And I, I've been re- skim reading. I only got it from the library a couple of days ago, so I haven't read it properly. But I've been skim reading this book, he says, holding up to the camera. Really good on an audio podcast. But... It's uh, David Brown's book, and it's called Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, The Wild Definitive Saga of Rock's Greatest Supergroup. I read mm. the Peter Doggett book about it a few years ago, so, but I haven't actually, don't actually own it, so uh, 
I've, I've remembered some stuff from that book, but uh, this one is, is also really good. But in, the, in, in Mama Cass, right? So it, back in those days, if you were hanging around in Laurel Cannon with the beautiful people, you'd be hanging around at Peter Tork's house, you know, for the monkeys. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was in, in, in actually later bought by Stephen Stills, that house. Or you'd be hanging around at Mama Cass, Cass's place. And everybody would take drugs and, uh, and you know, drop out, tune in. And inevitably, acoustic guitars would come out. It sounds, I've got to say, as, as, a, as, a, as a punk rocker, this sounds like an absolute nightmare. But because um, <laughs> uh, the mamas and the papas were kind of coming to a close... Mama Cass yeah. had this idea of forming a new vocal harmony group just with all her friends. Just yeah. uh, and the fantasy lineup she had in her mind for this group was was her mate David Crosby, her mate Stephen Stills, um, Graham Nash a bit later when they when when she met him uh, herself naturally, and Paul McCartney, oh, right. uh, who she only really knew tangentially, but uh, but she had a massive crush on him. Mm. Uh, um, so when Crosby, Stills, and Nash actually got together to make a record. And didn't invite Mama Cass to be part of it, apart from doing some harmony vocals on one song on that first album. She was, by all accounts, absolutely heartbroken. Mm. Um, but the, I like what you said about the, the name as well, because even on the first album, the egotistical maniacs in the band were arguing mm. over the name. They all agreed that they didn't want a band name. Yeah. Because they, they, wanted, they thought, well, if we just call it Crosby, Stills and Nash, then none of us are replaceable. They'd all had experience <laughs> in their previous bands of, of, of the band name living on without them. Well, that, that's yeah. not always true, though, is it? Because um, ELP, famously, uh, replaced the P. Did they? With her? Yeah, well, Cozy Powell became the drummer in ELP after, is it Carl Palmer uh, left? Well, his, his name still begins with a P. Yeah, well, but, but he was replaced. Yeah, so did they place an advert for drummer required? Begins um, with P. Yeah. <laughs> Chops Don't the Surname has to begin with a P. Um, but yeah, so they they, uh, they argued about the name uh, for the first album. Stills, in particular, had been passionately arguing the case for Stills, Nash, and Crosby, or Stills, Crosby, and Nash. Um, but he wasn't too bothered so long as the Stills part uh, came first. The, the idea, again, for when they first got together was they just get together, make this record, and then all, all go off and do their solo things. Um, mm. they, it, they were never supposed to be a long-term project. They were just going to make one album. But I guess that, the success of that first record kind of cursed them in a way, because all three of them are now destined to forever be remembered, or best known for being part of that trio. Hence the many reconciliations and reformations and lucrative tour offers they've had over the subsequent years that have kept them coming back to each other, even though they clearly hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and also yeah. the Stills thing, what his name's right, there's, there's, they all think they're the big name in the band. They all think they're the big attraction. Yeah. Um, and in the UK, that's true. That Nash was, you know, it was generally reported at the time as being Nash's new project. In oh. the UK only. And Crosby was probably the best known of the three in the USA. But Stills thought he was the main one because he was basically playing most of the, nearly all the music. Mm. Uh, apart from the drums, he pretty much plays everything on that first album, which is why he got Neil Young involved, because he wanted to share the workload of the actual playing the instrument. But when, mm. they, when they got Young involved, 
The idea wasn't that it, he would get equal billing and it would be Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young, like it is on that album cover. They were going to call it like Crosby, Stills and Nash and then in smaller letters underneath with Neil Young, you know. <laughs> and, Neil and even Young, smaller letters, Dallas Taylor and Greg Reeves, presumably. Yeah, exactly. So Neil Young was going to be slightly bigger letters than, than the drummer and the bass player, but, yeah. but certainly not equal billing. But right. Neil Young uh, was a, a fairly unknown at the time. And he saw it. He, he 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 makes a different claim these days. But at the time, he said there's several sources that said that Neil Young said he was only joining this group to give his own solo career a bit of a boost. He'd had two solo albums, and both of them had been fairly well flops. And mm. um, you know, if, if that's true, it was a genius move because, as we will come to talk with the second album, mm. the four solo albums that came out after this. His was by far the most successful, and then the, the album after that, even more successful. And Neil Young yeah. is the biggest name. So the balance of the of power in the band shifted permanently after yeah. that. And he... As, uh, as presumably did font size. Yes, exactly, yeah. 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 So there's a, lot, there's a lot going on with the egos and the... After this, they only ever really get, get back together when Neil Young says so. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder whether there's any significance in. I'm just looking at the the cover now. The the, the picture of the the band yes. and the dog, yes. uh, cool looking dog, um, has Neil Young and Graham Nash standing, and uh, Stephen Stills and David Crosby sitting. I wonder how they could possibly have agreed that that was okay. You wonder how they agreed on anything a lot of the time. Um, David Crosby does have a gun. I wonder. So that that could yeah, explain. That's probably how they agreed to it. <laughs> yeah, he said, no, you sit down, because I've got a gun. Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah, I suppose we'd get, better get on to talking about the songs then, haven't we? Well, I, I think it's, what's quite interesting is that there's obviously a spread of, of um, uh, authors of the songs. So go, going back to, to Graham Nash, you're talking about Graham Nash wanting to do something more interesting. The, the two Graham Nash songs, Teach Your Children and, and Our House, couldn't be really more twee, could they? And And... I don't. I don't know if if could they be Holly's songs? I would thought they probably could. Well, I mean, Marrakesh Express on the first album um, was first touted as a song for the Hollies. Um, mm. He tried to get the Hollies to record that. Um, yeah, I agree. They're they 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 um, teacher children's got potential. I think the lyrics really good, um, and the the country guitar on it. Presumably, that's Stills. Is no, no, fantastic. that's that's Jerry Garcia. Is it? Yeah. Ah, oh, uh, it's really good. Really, really good. Um, but the, the production on that one's a bit weird. The band are very low in the mix, and you can only really hear the vocals. Uh, but I, mm. I, I, think it's, I think it's a good lyric um, in terms of, like, helping the, you know, bridge the generation gap. And, yeah. Uh, um, uh, do you know what, what inspired it? Was a picture, a photograph that you saw. And All right. I've got the book here. Let me just read you from the book. I, I do. I'm aware that this was written when he was in the Hollies as well. So presumably the Hollies turned it down. Oh right, I, I don't know. Um, it says it was written the previous year. Um, he'd seen a photograph by a, a photographer called Diane Arbus, which is called "Child with a Toy Hand Grenade" in Central Park, New York, uh, 1962, and it shows a young boy flashing a pace, playful grimace while holding a plastic weapon. Uh, and uh, there's a quote from Graham Nash here. Uh, this photo spoke volumes to me. The kid was only about nine or ten years old, but his expression bristled with intense anger. He had a plastic grenade clenched in a fist. 
but it seemed to me that if it were real, the kid would have thrown it. The consequences it implied startled me, and I thought if we don't start teaching our kids a better way of dealing with each other, humanity will never succeed. Mm. And I think it's, if, if that's the intention of the lyric, then it's, it's successful. But, like, yeah, like, if, if, if the production's a bit, yeah, like Twee. If, yeah. if, if, that, if that sounded like um, a, one of the country songs off The Birds, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, mm. and a bit more muscle to it, yeah. the playing, yeah, I'd it like would it be more. really good. Yeah, but um, well, Our House, I, 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 I really don't like that. No, I, I mean, don't like that one very much either. Who, yeah. who wants to know how happy he is? Because he, I presume that that's written about uh, Joni Mitchell Mitchell's cats and Joni Mitchell's vase that she buys. I mean, who gives a, a flying one, really? Um, I, I mean, I, I appreciate the factual accuracy. Yeah. But uh, but otherwise, no, you're all right. No, I'm, 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 I, I agree. I, I, it's not helped by the fact that, wasn't it in a building society advert or something several years ago? <laughs> That's where I first heard it. it was, really, yeah. And I didn't like it in, in, when it was there. Um, so I would say, I would say by by some distance the two the, the worst songs on this album are those two. So Graham Nash. I mean, for me, it could be Crosby, Stills, and Young, and be a better album. Uh, David Crosby actually has two two songs right yeah. that, he's, that he's authored here. So almost cut my hair and Deja Vu. Um, almost cut my hair is is uh, has got some good guitar on it. I don't know who's playing guitar, and I'm presuming that is Stills actually. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know. Um, but uh, no harmonies, really. Yeah, yeah. Which I thought was quite unusual. Um, but there's lots of lots of soloing. It's all right. I quite like that one. Um, and uh, Deja Vu, the title track. Uh, the harmonica's John Sebastian. I don't know if you knew that. Right. Um, but it's a it's a bit annoying, really. <laughs> oh, I really like I really like it. It's oh, it's uh, it's quite it's it's it doesn't sound like anything else on the album. It's almost no. jazzy. Uh, it's in kind of six True. eight time. Um, and I, yeah, I, I really like. I actually really like both those. They're amongst my favourites. The two oh, okay. Cosby ones. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it it was based on an experience that he had when he when he started sailing because he was really into sailing. David Crosby. Is uh, this a euphemism? No, no. It's, it, it's it's nothing to do with freebasing cocaine or anything like that. Oh, okay. It's actually actually sailing a boat. Uh, okay. So he, he, he first time he went out on a friend's sailboat, he, he said that he felt eerily familiar and this, this is the quote from uh, David Brown's book it's as if mm. I'd done it before I knew way more about it than I should have I knew how to sail a boat right away not an instinct not an instinctive thing it doesn't make sense I wasn't thinking about that specifically when I wrote the song it just came but in hindsight the song was informed by those experiences I felt then and I feel now that I have been here before I don't believe in God but I think the Buddhists got it right we do recycle so okay. it's, it's all okay. about, you know, reincarnation, isn't it? Yeah. And again, yeah. the lyric is very successful, I think, in, 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 in telling that. I, I, it's not normally the kind of thing I like, but maybe because it's surrounded by a lot of sort of rockers and, uh, mm. and acoustic-y stuff. Yeah. That this one st- stood out for me just because it's a bit different from the rest it, of the Well, I, I mean, that, that's certainly true. It, it, it is different. All right, okay, well, fair enough. And Almost so, so My you... Hair uh, is, is another one I like. It's one of the few songs I knew of this album before uh, listening to this album in the last few weeks. Mm. Um, mm. And it's, it's good. It's like a, a statement of intent for the, for the hippie movement, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the iconic phrase, uh, let my freak, free freak flag fly. 
mm. uh, which he kind of borrowed. I think Jimi Hendrix's "If Six Was Nine, which also has that phrase in it. I'm going to wave my freak flag high. I, f- I think Jimi Hendrix's song came before, but I haven't actually mm. checked. But uh, yeah. um, all right, well, let, well, let's move on to, to Stephen Stills. Then. So Stephen Stills has "Carry On," which is the opening track. Mm-hmm. Um, that's his, and four and twenty. That's his, and he and he co-writes the, the closing track as well. But, but perhaps we'll, we'll we'll leave that for till we talk about Neil Young. So, yeah. "Carry On," I think, as a, as an opener, is really good, and I really like that up until the point where it goes a bit quicker. It sort of slows down, and it's quite slow at the start. And then there's uh, kind of an a cappella bit in the middle. Yes, and yeah. then it then it speeds up. And I think I, I really like the beginning bit. And then not so much in the second. It's kind of not not so it's interesting. But I really like the, uh, the sort of the loose acoustic guitar sound, uh, and the harmonies uh, to full effect there as well. Yeah, the second part was uh, a Buffalo Springfield song a re- uh, called "Questions," um, which they sort of re-recorded. I like the wah wah guitar solo near the end, uh, but no, and, and, and yeah, the the bits where they sing the close harmony stuff. I mean, mm. they are amazing at it. They yeah. really are amazing at it, and that bit, the a cappella bit in the middle of that song, is probably the best example of this on the on the I whole agree. album. It does sound amazing. It does, um, yeah. If you're into that kind of thing, yeah. So and and it you know it's much imitated. This start you know you think of all these American bands around these days who go off into cabins in the woods to record their albums. You know, like Fleet <laughs> Foxes and Iron and Wine and all those people. They're all yeah. trying to get that sound. Yeah, but you know. The original and the best, as they say in the cornflakes packet, is these guys. They, yeah, they, no, they do sound amazing. Yeah. Having said that, carry on. No, doesn't um, no, no thanks. No, really... What about four and twenty? Then so, so four and twenty is is quite an interesting song, isn't it? Because it's it's. Is it? I think it's suggesting that being twenty four is old, which is remarkable when you consider how old we are. Yeah, um, and it's, it's it's a story of someone who who starts with nothing and then ends with nothing. Again, it's got. I think it's got nice guitar on it. Um, that's the only song I think with only one musician on it. So only Stills plays on this song. It's quite sad, really, but I, I quite like it. It's not bad. Yeah, I don't really like it. No, it's a bit boring. Bit boring. No. Uh, I, I'd, I'd skip another one. I'd skip. Uh, no. So the Neil Young songs then. What, yeah, helpless. Yes. We we haven't really talked about um, you know the best song on the album, which wasn't written by any of these people. The Joni Mitchell song. Yeah, we'll come to that afterwards, shall we? So, yeah, he's got that, that medley, Country Girl, the three songs in one kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and Helpless. Yeah. Yeah, so I know, I already know that you really like Helpless, yeah? I do really yeah. like Helpless. So I, I, that's a, do you, know, you know the last waltz, the band's uh, concert? Yeah. Yeah, so he sings it in that. That's where I first heard it. And he's, I remember. He, he, I think he's under quite a lot of chemical influence. Yes, yes. They famously had to. Martin Scorsese famously had to go back and and um, put what's called a mat m a t t e over every frame that Neil Young was in because he had a massive rock of cocaine hanging from his nostril. So yeah. they had to go back and 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 uh, cover that up in every frame he was in. Um, but you know that see also everybody else in that concert, I should think. Uh, but. I used to have that on VHS, recorded off BBC Two back in the day, and I used to think that Helpless was um, quite slow, and it's the same three chords over and over and over again, and it goes on a bit, and it's a bit boring, especially in comparison to you know the far more energetic and compelling performances in that film by Joni Mitchell or Van Morrison or, or the band themselves, or even Neil Diamond. However, 
Mm. The, I, I do quite like it, the recorded version. It's about... But for me, it's by far the best song on the album. Right. Okay. It's, I still think it's a, it goes on a bit. I know it's not even that long, but I still think it goes on a bit. <laughs> and, and the chorus is just kind of, okay, helpless, 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 helpless. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. But all right. I mean, it, again, if it was on... I know we're going to come to talk to talk about After the Gold Rush soon, but if it was on After the Gold Rush, would it be one of the best songs on that album? Well, I mean, yes. Okay, frankly. all right. I, I, I don't agree. I, I think if it was on After the Gold Rush, it wouldn't be a song that we were noticing. When, when yeah, maybe. Country songs. girl, country girl, I think is basically it sounds like Buffalo Springfield to me, and I think that the fir- at least the first two parts of that song uh, were Buffalo Springfield songs originally, um, and it, it sounds if not like Buffalo Springfield, then then very much like the first Neil Young album, which I don't particularly like. Yeah, it's all right. Well, it, the first it's it's like three songs in one one, isn't it? And Whiskey yeah. Boot Hill, the first one. Uh, that was on his solo debut album Neil Young but in a kind of string quartet arrangement the second yeah. part Down 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 was a song that he had recorded with Buffalo Springfield but had never been released yeah. um, I like the first one uh, Whiskey Boot Hill I like the first one I'm not not, so, not quite so bothered about the others but it's all fine it's all yeah, fine. It's yeah. fine. It is fine yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah I mean interesting from a, from a Robert Pollard perspective of course is, is that uh, Robert Pollard does from time to time throw in multi-part songs in the same same vein, and of of course is is renowned for for uh, reusing snippets from old songs um, as, yes. as sort of a, you know either in the middle bit or, or wherever. So he's, there's quite a lot of of influence there, I think, on on Pollard's songwriting. Um, All right, we haven't talked about Woodstock. No, we'll, we'll save Woodstock because we've got Everybody I Love You, which is the Steel's young oh, yeah. uh, closer. Um, they get quite excited in that, don't they? Well, the, the guitar playing is quite, quite nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. His vocals are over the top, though, which is a bit annoying. But the, yeah, the harmonies are okay, and the guitar's good. I'm assuming it's Neil Young on guitar. Um, but yeah, not a great song, and certainly not as good as Woodstock, which is um, Joni Mitchell, who who I am a huge fan of, as you know. That's sarcasm, um, listener. That's sarcasm. <laughs> I am a huge fan of Joni Mitchell. You are, yeah. But kick I, not. Uh, no, not really. Uh, it, it's on her Ladies of the Canyon album, right? Yeah, yeah. This song. I mean, uh, I, I think I probably like this better than Joni Mitchell's song. Yeah. Not having heard Joni Mitchell's song, um, but the uh, this is this is the band in full flight because this is one of the the few songs, one of the only songs. I don't, you can perhaps put me right here where they all perform together on this. So it's a Neil Young guitar solo. It's Neil Young guitar intro, uh, but they're all all four of the CSN and Y are on it. It's, yes. it's, it's pretty good. It's a decent song as well. Isn't it's, it? it's a it's a it's a great song. I really love Joni's version as well. Um, the first version I heard of it was by um, a band called Matthews Southern Comfort, who, who also did a version of it, and their version's really good too. Um, the, what they've they've kind of rearranged it a bit because they've turned it into a more straightforward rock song and adapted some mm. of the chord sequences. Um, Joni's version is in a minor key and this is in a major key and they've changed some of the chords in the chorus apparently uh, in September 69 Stills was in New York hanging out with Hendrix and they kind of worked on this arrangement of the song uh, mm-hmm. but in this uh, there's, uh, there's an interview here with Stephen Stills from when they did the 50th anniversary uh, sort of reissue of this album with all the extra tracks and it said um, this is Stephen Stills talking um, I played Joni my arrangement and asked for her permission 
Uh, I played on my version of Woodstock and years later I now regret not using more of her really good strange notes. I made the melody a little straighter and in retrospect I wonder if that was right. Um, I think he's been a bit harsh there. I mean, like I say, I like both versions and he has you know, straightened out the melody quite a lot. Um, but I, I, yeah, I really like this. Of course, Joni Mitchell, ironically, being the one who's written the most famous song about Woodstock and wasn't really permitted to go. Yes. Uh, so her, her manager, David Geffen, she was booked to uh, for this important TV appearance on the Dick Cavett show, uh, which I think was the day after Woodstock. And uh, her manager, David Geffen, said, no, you can't miss this important TV booking. <laughs> uh, and so you can't go and play Woodstock the day before. But in an incredible display of double standards, he paid for a helicopter to ship Crosby, Stills and Nash up there and get them back so they could do the festival and the TV appearance. Mm -hmm. But he wouldn't do the same for Joni. In yeah. Pete Doggett's book, uh, he says that in, in, a, you know, in this world of massive egos, David Geffen had the biggest ego of all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, I, I really like that version. Uh, the, the band sound great. Stills' vocals are great. And it's a great song. So uh, yeah. that, that, that's my favourite on the album, really. Okay, um, okay. All right, well, do you want to give it a, a rating then? Yeah, uh, well, I, I really like, the, as I just said, Woodstock's my favourite. Uh, and I really like Almost Cut My Hair. And I really like Deja Vu. I quite like Helpless. And I quite like Teacher Children. I'd say Side One is, uh, the acoustics, uh, 4 plus 21, that's all right as well. Uh um, and the Neil Young Country Girl thing is pretty good. Uh, but overall, I'd say Side One's significantly better than Side Two. Mm. Uh, and I'll give it overall, I think, a five. I think in okay. many ways, I'm more interested in the characters and the stories and the internal squabbling of this band than I yeah. am in, in the actual music. Fair enough. I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I much prefer Side A. It has my two favourite songs on the album on it, Helpless and, and Woodstock. Um, and I like Carry On and Almost Cut My Hair. The rest of it's okay. I quite like Country Girl, bits of it anyway, and 4 and 20. Yeah, I mean, I I can't give it much more than a 5 either, so I'll give it a 5.5 just to be a little bit different. Okay. Um, and you, you know some of the stories about why they broke up? So we talked about Mama Cass and Joni Mitchell be, being involved in the formation of the band. Do you know who oh, yeah. was... Who's often gets the blame, perhaps unfairly, well, definitely unfairly, for breaking up the band. Is it Yoko Ono? <laughs> no, no. Uh, Rita Coolidge. Oh, really? Yeah, Rita okay. Coolidge. Because she, she, she uh, sang backing vocals on uh, the, the Stephen Stills solo album. Uh, and uh, Graham Nash was also in the studio. Uh, and uh, in, be in between, you know, Coolidge and Nash were kind of hitting it off. Uh, uh, and Nash invited her to come and see uh, their Crosby, Stills and Nash uh, gig the next night. Uh, this is from an interview in the New York Post with Ruta Coolidge. She was unsure if it was just a, if it was a date or just a friendly invite, and she was, in her own words, too shy to clarify. But she accepted the invite, and Nash, who was then staying in Stills' home, gave her a phone number and said, "Call the next day to make plans." So she rang that number the next day. Stephen Stills answered. And the plans had supposedly changed. Stills told her that Nash, who Stills also uh, quite liked Rita Coolidge, um, yeah. and he told her that Nash wouldn't be able to accompany her because he he was taking some other woman, and he'd made other arrangements. And he said, "Well, I'm going to pick you up instead." 
And so she went to the gig with Stephen Stills, and they began dating. But backstage at that gig, she saw, um, of course, uh, Nash, who was, like, pretty annoyed about it, and um, obviously didn't know about the phone call and Stephen Stills' deception. Um, so he he just did like didn't speak to her backstage, um, okay. but Stills again comes across as a bit of a nutter. Um, uh, <laughs> on the way to that concert, he pulled the car over and asked her when her birthday was, and when she answered, it was May the first, which happens to be also the same birthday as Judy Collins, who he'd recently had a very intense and fiery relationship with. He like stopped the car and uh, looked absolutely livid at her. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, she, she said she went out with, with Stills for a bit longer, but she had her eye on Graham. And uh, after describing Stills as a boyfriend as, quote, extremely unsatisfying, she <laughs> then uh, called up Nash. She learned from talking to Nash that, that he hadn't um, made other plans for that first night mm. and that Stills had lied about it. Mm. Um, I put all this together and realised what a sneaky little bugger Stephen was, she says. And I really didn't want to see him anymore. So what do you think they did then? They get married. Stills, Nash and Coolidge. What do they do about this situation? Oh, what is it a menage a trois? No, no. What would you not do in this situation, bearing in mind what we already know about Stephen Stills and his temper? Well, involve him in any way. Yeah. Go and talk to him about it. Yeah, so, so Nash and Coolidge went to see Stephen Stills um, to tell him that they were now uh, a, a couple and... Yeah. Um, uh, they hoped that they'd get his blessing. Um, <laughs> so they, they saw him, and um, Stephen, Rita and I just want to talk to you about something. Um, and then Stills just went for Nash. He just went for it. <laughs> Swinging punches. Um, and uh, Crosby says, again, Crosby, hardly the most reliable person <laughs> in anything. Crosby says that um, she's the reason why... Um, well, they split why they split up? Yeah, I mean, it was quite a, quite a, help, a helpful split, wasn't it? Because all all four of those solo albums that came out, so Neil Young's After the Gold Rush, which we're going to talk about, Stephen Stills' solo album, uh, self-titled solo album, Crosby's If If I Could Only Remember My Name and Nash's Songs for Beginners, all came out of the embers of this split. Then, yeah, yeah, and uh, they they were all pretty successful, especially Stills' out and Young's album, but Young's was. The most successful. I've just been listening to the Crosby one actually this morning before we. That's good. I like it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, uh, he's he's another fiery character, isn't he? Crosby. Mm. I know he died mm. recently, but um, he's fallen out with just about everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, I think we mentioned on the Birds podcast that even McGuinn, who seems like the most chilled out, hippie, lovey dovey guy out of all of them, even he. A few years ago, said, "You know what? I've had it with Crosby now. <laughs> I've been so tolerant and stuck up for him all these years, but now, but I, I, the story of him and Neil Young falling out is quite a good one. Do you know that one? <laughs> Go on. Well, he, he, we will eventually listen and talk yeah, about. Yeah, we will. We will. I, I just think there's some good stories in here. So, yeah, Crosby called Neil Young's partner Daryl Hannah. He called her a poisonous predator. Oh. Um, I mean, clearly false, because everyone knows uh, Daryl Hannah's actually a mermaid, so yeah. technically she's neither poisonous or a predator, and no. the principal diet of the mermaid being um, seaweed, I believe. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, um, uh, and, and she's also a replicant, of course, don't forget, so I don't think they eat anything <laughs> at all. Um, but anyway, there's, there's some context to this, because before she was with Neil Young, Daryl Hannah had had a relationship with Jackson Brown, one of oh. uh, Crosby's long-term best pals, 
And she, well, she didn't directly accuse uh, Jackson Brown of domestic violence, but uh, there were certainly some incidences that implied that. Um, and by the way, she's not the first to, uh, not the first claim to be thrown that way, because uh, uh, another former partner of Jackson Brown's, Joni Mitchell, has made similar claims in song uh, on, on more than one occasion. And there have been long-standing rumours of similar behaviour from Jackson Brown contributing to the suicide of his wife, Phyllis Majors, in 1976. Mm. Um, but Crosby did apologise later on. He did apologise to Young. So before they died, uh, Crosby and Young had kind of made up. And, and Young made a nice statement about Crosby when he died recently. Uh, the others, not so much. Right, OK. Mm. They all think they're the same one as well. Uh, there's a, <laughs> On the back cover of Doggett's book, Nash says, sometimes I think I'm the same one in the band and that Stephen and David are mad... And then in this interview uh, from the 50th anniversary of the, the release of this album, uh, Still says, David and Cro Graham are at each other's throats all the time, but I had a great time. Everyone was looking at me saying, who knew you turned out to be the same one? Uh, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know if there's any claims of Crosby claiming he's the same one, but that would be... Uh, too far. Yeah, I think even he's not going to claim that. No, no, no. Yeah. All right, well, anyway. let's talk about After Goldrush then, because yeah. because you, you you've you've got some information about its release, have you? A, a bit, yes. Yeah. So it was recorded. You know, songs written and recorded round about the same time. Uh, the album came out in September se nineteen seventy, but they started recording in August sixty nine. Um, uh, finished recording in the summer of seventy. Uh, some songs recorded in Sunset Sound Studios and Sound City Studios, both of which are in Los Angeles. But most of the album was recorded in Neil Young's um, basement studio in his house in a place called Topanga Canyon, which is just up the coast from Los Angeles. The title of the album comes from a screenplay for a film that was never actually made. The screenplay after the gold rush written by the actor Dean Stockwell and a guy called Herb Berman, who I'd never heard of, but I looked him up and I found that he co-wrote most of the songs on an album we're going to get to later in this series, Captain Beefheart and his magic bands, Safe as Milk. Uh, the personnel were kind of Crazy Horse, um, uh, mm. um, Neil Young uh, on guitar, harmonica, piano, various things. Uh, Danny Whitten on guitar and vocals, a very, very young Niels Lofgren, um, uh, 18 years old he was at the time. Uh, Jack Nietzsche on piano, uh, Billy Talbot on bass for most of the songs, although Greg Reeves, who played on the CSNY stuff, also plays bass on a couple of songs and Ralph Molina on drums. So, kind of crazy horse. Um, you you have admitted there, I'm looking at the, the back of the album here, you have admitted uh, Susan Young on Patches. Oh, I apologise for that. That's uh, that blame Wikipedia uh, for that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a country... Much of it is kind of country songs, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the, so, so the opening song, for example, is quite typical of much of the album. It is basically a country song. And... Um, I got to say the the playing uh, again the playing on all of this album is fantastic. Uh, again, the vocal harmonies they do sound a bit Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, but they're not. It's 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 the other guys from from his from Neil Young's band. Uh, the harmonies are fantastic, but yeah, the country the countryish songs tell me why. Um, Only love can break your heart. Oh, lonesome me. Um, they're all right, but for me, the, when the band get going a bit more, it's it, it's a lot better. Well, yeah. Oh, Lone to Me, of course, is a Don Gibson cover, so, I mean, it is, it is a country song. Yes. Um, Only Love Can Break Your Heart, I really like. 
um, and written written about Graham Nass, I believe. Yeah, to try and help him feel better after after Joni dumped him. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a very simple lyric, but I don't know. The melodies does something to me. I think it's it's a, it's a great song. Um, tell me why I really like lyrically. Um, I think the the line "sailing hardships through broken harbours" is is quite a brilliant line. Um, but you you can tell in a way where Neil Young's going next from those songs, can't you? Because it it those songs feel like harvest. Yes, yes, indeed, yeah. So the, the, this is his third album, right? So the first one was the yeah. Neil Young, was the sec, um, Neil Young album. What was the second yeah. one? Is that everybody knows this is nowhere? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so he's already done quite a lot of the sort of what I what I would say the the the, the sort of more typical Neil Young Crazy Horse sound. On the, yeah. everyone knows this is nowhere. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, but but then the other albums like On the Beach and Zuma, they're they're later, right? So that's, that's yeah. correct. Okay. Late 17, right. yeah. What I found quite interesting about this this album is is that I think there's quite a lot of piano on it, and um, so the the piano songs um, like birds and uh, After the Gold Rush itself are brilliant. They're, they're, they're amongst my favourites on this album. And, and I was wondering whether... Uh, has Neil Young recorded a piano song that hasn't been great? And I'm going to say at this point, possibly contentiously, no, he hasn't. And I think you, you could make a, an album of just piano songs, of Neil Young piano songs. Um, so you'd include those two from this album, possibly Borrowed Time, just off the top of my head, Philadelphia... Um, string man, all all those sorts of things, brilliant. That's that's where his his melancholy comes out. And I know you're a you're you're a sucker for melancholy like me. And and those songs are standouts for me here. Yeah, uh, me, me too, me too. That. I don't know those other ones you mentioned. You're you're far more of a Neil Young expert than I am. Uh, maybe a Spotify playlist on the blog post could accompany. Oh that. yeah, I might do that. Yeah, Neil Young's piano songs. Uh, uh, but yeah, after the gold rush is brilliant. Again, a song I know from other people covering it as well. Natalie Merchant's done this one. Tom York's done this one, uh, and their versions are also great. Neil Young's version is great. He's dreaming, right? That's what it's about. He says at the start of a couple of the verses, he's dreaming. Uh, he has some crazy dreams. Yeah, well, uh, it's through time, isn't it? So, so it's it's. Uh, I don't know how many years the song spans, but it goes from. The, the past to the future. Well, he starts um, off dreaming of knights in armour and peasants and, and an archer uh, yeah. and, and a queen. And then he says, um, look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s. He should probably have said there, look at Mother Nature on... Look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1370s would have probably been more accurate. Cause well, he has changed that line when he plays it live. He, he, Does he, he say 1370s? No, he doesn't. He, doesn't. he talk, talks about the twentieth century, certainly. Yes, I, I, I presume twenty-first century as well now. Yeah, and then the middle, the middle bit is is um, he's just woken up. I think I was lying in the burn, burned-out basement with a full moon in my eyes, and there was a band yeah. playing in my head, and I felt like getting high. What do you think the bit about? I was thinking about what a friend had said. I was hoping it was a lie. Any idea? What I'm sure that's say? something to do with somebody from the previous band. <laughs> yes, probably, yes. Probably talking about Rita Coolidge, I should think. Yeah. And then I love uh, the, the flugelhorn solo in the middle. Yes, I'm going to say, I didn't realise it was a flugelhorn until I did a little bit of research for this. Uh, yeah, great, that's great. I called Bill Peterson playing that, oh, uh, okay. uh, I found out. And then, then the last verse, it's all about um, spaceships. Yeah, flying Mother Nature's yeah, Silver Seed to a New Humming Yeah, it's brilliant. It's, it's a brilliant song. And Birds as well. Um, is a song that I, I know... Um, I do know the Paul Weller album, the covers album, Studio 150. 
It, it's it's mm. I don't it's 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 not a sort of nineties Paul Weller album. It's a, um, it's it's an album of uh, shall we say v- very variable merit. Um, but when it's good, it's really, really, really good. So he does a good right. version of a really good version of Thinking of You by Sister Sledge, for example. But then mm. m- most of it's not very good. But he does this song, and it, it's the standout song on the album. I, I presumed when I heard Weller singing it that it's an old soul song because it sounds like an old soul song when when Paul Weller does it. He's got mm. gospelly backing vocalists and stuff like that. And he's, um, you know, he's a, arguably, in my opinion, a much, much better singer than, than Neil Young. And it, and it, it sounds like a soul song, because I know this album a bit anyway, but this, this song has passed me by a little bit until I heard Paul Weller's version of it. And then I went back and listened to the Neil Young version and realised, well, it's, it, that's also fantastic. I think it's a breakup song, isn't it? Do you think? He's, yeah. He's, he's talking yeah. about flying away and yeah. um, shadow on the things you know because he's flying away. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so again, I agree with you. Those two songs are both brilliant. Can I can I now t- talk those two? Don't let it bring you down, which is another of my my big favourites on this album. And I don't know if you're aware of the the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young live album Four Way Street. Have you heard that? No, no. Ah, well, it's good. I mean, there's there's some really good versions on it. But the best thing about it, they play they play this actually. Um, but Neil Neil Young introduces it like this. He says, "Here's a new song." It's guaranteed to bring you right down. It's called Don't Let It Bring You Down. <laughs> it sort of starts off real slow and then fizzles out altogether. And then it kicks into it. And I think that's, yeah. that's, 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 that's how songs should be introduced. Yeah, the, the chorus is interesting. Don't let it bring you down. It's only castles burning. Find someone who's turning and you'll come around. I think that's a drug reference. It's a pretty safe bet, isn't it? I think he means turning on, you know, like taking LSD, find someone who's turning. That's my theory. I've got no no clue about the rest of the uh, the song, what it's on about. Uh, well, maybe the old man lying by the side of the road with the lorries rolling by is actually a literal old man lying by the side of the road while, uh, and then later on in the, he dies because he's a dead he man lying know. by the side of the road. Yeah. So that yeah. might just be about a homeless person, I think. Yeah. That's um, what I thought. The oh, oh, Lonesome Me. I quite like Oh, Lonesome Me, but but because I know that song from the Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra, you know very well, I love Lee Hazelwood. And mm. I love Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra records. And they play that song with a, with a Johnny Cash kind of rhythm. In fact, it's on the same album as their version of um, Johnny and June Carter Cash's Jackson. Um, so Neil Young's version is good and it's very well played, but it's far too slow. <laughs> Well, I, I think I think yeah. thing about it being so slow is is almost like he's taking the piss, isn't he? I yeah. mean, it, it, it is it is like a uh, an overstated look at me, I'm so miserable from somebody who presumably was being critiqued as being far too miserable. Yeah, and uh, it's yeah. like a two fingers up. I think I, that's how I take it anyway. Yeah, and then that you got uh, when you dance. Uh, what's it called? When you dance, I can really love. Again, yeah. the playing on that is really good. It's a bit more of a lively one. Uh, I believe in you. Really good. Uh, the the song that closes um, side one and the song that closes side two, I could I could happily lose lose both of those. And the I don't think the album would suffer at all if you took off um, till the morning comes. It's a bit boring. And and every time I listen to the album, I go, well, which one's that again? It's uh, got a nice trumpet on it, I think that one. Uh, but it is very slight. Yeah. Uh, and the last song. Um, What's the last song called? I forgot. Cripple Creek Ferry. Cripple Creek Ferry. Uh, Don't you like the silly voices on it? 
Nah, nah. <laughs> I was, I, I, I've been Googling Cripple Creek, though, because I thought, well, the band sing about up on Cripple Creek, don't they? Um, mm. So I thought, well, where, where is this place that they're all singing about? And I found out that Cripple Creek is a, is a very old um, folk song, often played on the fiddle, uh, oh. Appalachian folk song, uh, okay. and a, a tune of unknown origin. It's a bit of a standard among bluegrass music, musicians. Um, nobody really knows wh- which Cripple Creek they're talking about, but the most famous Cripple Creek is Cripple Creek in Colorado, where a mining town was formed after gold was discovered there in 1891. However, most traditional bluegrass music- musicians believe the song probably refers to Cripple Creek in Virginia, which would be more sort of geographically uh, <laughs> nearby to where, where, the, where the Appalachian bluegrass music's coming from. Is it in the south at all? That it's the south, isn't it? The Virginia, Virginia's kind of south. Yeah. And so that takes us into Southern Man, and the only song we haven't really talked about. Is that the only one we haven't talked about? Well, it's probably yeah. one of my favourites. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really good song. The band are on fire there, aren't they? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. There's, there's, and, and the the, uh, the vocals are really good as well. I mean, this is one of the two Neil Young songs. This isn't it that uh, supposedly uh, caused Leonard Skinner to do "Sweet Home Alabama" as a riposte. Yes. Um, yeah. And but but I don't. I think it's probably Alabama rather than this one. I think this one's a bit more nuanced. Um, and uh, so yeah. New, sorry, Neil Young's got another song called Alabama, has he? He's got he's got a song called Alabama. Right. Which is the same. You know, basically basically having a go at um, them for being racist. Right. Um, which yeah yeah Alabama based Leonard Skinner wrote Sweet Home Alabama about. And yeah. uh, it's mentioned of Neil Young. Apparently they got on very well, though, Leonard Skinner and Neil Young. Yes, I, I read a thing that said that um, one of the members of um, uh, Crazy Horse quite often wears a Leonard Skinner T-shirt on stage and that uh, Neil Young has covered Sweet Home at Alabama at his gig. Yeah, he has, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, it's, it, you know, if I, I don't know the song Alabama, but if that's more hard-hitting than Southern Man, because Southern Man doesn't um, hold back much, does it? Uh, it talks about burning crosses and it says... Um, uh, but but bull whips and screaming and bull whips and um, mm. southern man when will you pay them back tall white mansions and little shacks it's 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 pretty direct in what it's saying oh yeah no I think I think and and you know I think uh, I think fair enough yeah right? but it's a bit more rocking than quite a lot of the rest of the album and like you already said the vocal harmonies on it are fantastic and there's a yeah there's a really good guitar solo as well that's probably my favourite on the album oh really okay yeah yeah. 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 Um, I'm just looking up the, the lyrics to Alabama. So, yeah, I, I couldn't remember all of it. So, uh, on that, he's talking about Alabama, you've got the weight on your shoulders that's breaking your back. And then it's got stuff like, uh, see the old old folks tied in white ropes, hear the banjo, don't it take you down home. Um, what are you doing, Alabama? You've got the rest of the union to help you along. What's going wrong? So it's pretty direct yeah. as well. Yeah, <laughs> have to say, and, and I'm not sure that I've never been to Alabama. I don't know much about Alabama, but I know that um, the Public Enemy wrote a song in the '90s. By the time I get to Alabama, which is all about the fact that they were the last state to recognise Martin Luther King Day. In fact, I don't even know if they have officially recognised yeah. Martin Luther King Day. So, I suspect they're they're being dragged along by the rest of the, the states. Um, yeah. I, I would say that Southern Man is a much better song than Alabama. Right. Which album is yeah. Alabama on then? Is it on Harvest? I think it's on Harvest. Okay, right. I've I've done a bit of a deep dive into Neil Young over the last couple of weeks and I've listened to um, uh, this one. Um, I haven't listened to Harvest, actually, but but all those other ones. Zuma, On the Beach, Everybody Knows This Mm. Is Nowhere. 
this one and um, whatever the other one from the mid-70s is called. Tonight's the night, was it that? No, no, I, I didn't go that far forward mm. in time. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's a lot of good stuff there. There's a lot of good stuff. Uh, 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 yeah. He's quite good, Neil Young. But I, 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 generally, I do prefer him when he's rocking than when he's being country. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, this is this is actually one of my favourite Neil Young albums. I mean, certainly the first half uh, of this album, I think, is is stellar. Um, it's not my favourite album, but it is, it is up there, I think. Yeah. And uh, and it has, has some of my all-time favourite songs. After the Gold Rush and Birds are, are right up there for me. So I'm going to give it quite a high score, and I imagine it's going to be higher than you're going to give it, but I'm going to give it an eight. Okay. I'm going to give it six and a half. Um, mm. I, it, it's... Having done that deep dive into Neil Young's albums over the last few weeks, I wouldn't say it is my favourite, but it is very good. Uh, I, I agree with you. After the Gold Rush and Birds are brilliant. Um, Southern Man is probably my favourite, followed by those two. I also really, really like I Believe in You. I really, really like Don't Let It Bring You Down. Uh, oh, Lonesome Me. They should take that off and put the Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood uh, version on it. It's a bit more jolly, and it would kind of break up the mood of the album, I feel. You know, put, oh, put something a bit more lively and sing-along in the middle. Uh, I'm sure Neil listens to this podcast, and he'll, he'll perhaps think about yeah. it when he's, uh, he's reissuing. If, if you've never heard um, Country My Way uh, by Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood, it's a strong recommendation for that album from me as well. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Well, talking of things that you might never have heard, um, tape thirty, which is obviously the, the next one we're going to look at, it's a bit of a mix. We've got we have got an, an album that we're going to be listening to on that, which is uh, Andromeda's album Seven Lonely Street. Um, but once again, um, in his list of, of tapes, Robert Pollard doesn't specify an album uh, for the band The Attack. In fact, I'm not even sure that they have an album. So we'll be listening to their four singles plus one other song um, that I shall explain why we're listening to it next time. Robert Pollard's Guide to the Late 60s is a Trust the Wizards production. You can find out more at pollard60s.com and on Twitter at pollard60s. If you liked it, then please subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also enjoy their other podcast, which you can find at trustthewizards.com. Original music by the Malibu Storks. Kika Revelves and Chorizo Garbanzo are currently appearing in Waiting for Godot at the Mail Theatre in Leeds.